Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review Sebastian Vettel's Australian Grand Prix victory and ask whether it's set the shape for the season to come. For the second consecutive year, Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari won the season-opening Australian Grand Prix, but they did have to rely on the intervention of the virtual safety car and a Mercedes miscalculation to do so. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to look back at the race, first is Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott, this was your first race as a full-time member of Autosport's team in the F1 paddock. How did you enjoy it? Uh, It's a lot more stressful and intense than when you go there as a super sub. (laughs) There's a lot more expected of you, but yeah, it's it's cool. It's, uh, it's, It's just... It's so different from my previous beat as Formula E reporter. Just a, it's another, it's another world, another level entirely behind the scenes. And I, I don't see what the all the negativity is about. I didn't really care about the halo. I thought the cars sounded absolutely fine. So really, anyone that's uh, sort of been entrenched in F1 for for so long and is criticising it, it seemed they seemed to be a bit misplaced. Now, my second guest is a veteran of the F1 paddock, Stuart Codling. 
I'm a little bit concerned you might not be able to offer your usual meaty contributions to this podcast. Can you just explain why, please? Uh, Yes, uh, Mrs. Codling and I are having a vegetarian week uh, after my visit to the Punta del Este Formula E round, where, of course, I ate nothing but red meat uh, washed down with Malbec. The slightly decadent... um, Australian Grand Prix weekend, you have seen the picture of me in the leprechaun onesie on social media. So we thought we'd have a vegetarian week. Quite frankly, I don't know how vegetarians do it. And vegans, let's not go there. I'm in the grip of an iron deficiency. And you, Ed, I know I know you like data. You've seen the data from my turbo trainer performance yesterday. You've You've seen the workout where I was supposed to hit, what was it? Yes, 346 watts for a 30-second burst at the end, and I managed 302 watts for five seconds. That is iron deficiency written right there. It's there in the data. Yes, Vegetarianism the, the... <laughs> is evil. <laughs> well, so well, the the, uh, yeah, the data is quite alarming, as you seem to be. Uh, it's very, very up and down towards the end in terms of, of your speed. So you can see there's a little bit of a, a panic going on. That's my poorly configured gears that change up, change down, change up, change down. Well, that's because you didn't do the gear synchronization correctly on your laps to the grid. Yeah, I should probably have done that. Uh, but you, you don't want to trigger the accidental handshake sequence that makes the traction control come in, do you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You don't, don't want to activate any, any secret modes. Right, well, let's look at the Australian Grand Prix. Sebastian Vettel won from Lewis Hamilton, and the crux of the race was the deployment of the virtual safety car on lap 26. Without that, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes would certainly have won. So, Scott, what went wrong? Uh, I guess the simplest way of summing it up is that Mercedes made a miscalculation in terms of the time that they needed to have to Vettel to be able to retake the lead when if Vettel pit under a safety car. So Hamilton had already made his stop, nice and comfortable, well clear of Kimi Raikkonen, who was his main challenger in the first stint. And then uh, Vettel runs longer in the first stint. And then just before he's ready to make his pit stop, the the wheels come off the Haas challenge. Uh, virtual safety car is deployed. Vettel's able to pit. Loses less time in the pit stops compared to his rivals because everyone else is poodling around at virtual safety car speed. And uh, that time difference is enough for him to emerge just in front of Hamilton's Mercedes. I'm glad you used the word difference rather than delta because one of the most infuriating things about people in Formula One is when they use the word delta as a synonym for difference. Yeah, it's one of those many uh, irritating phrases. I considered uh, using the word delta and then I thought, actually, no, because I'm not a fool. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not on this particular one, but in general, I beg to differ. Well, let's just to get into the the detail of why that actually happened, hear from Mercedes Trackside Engineering Director Andrew Shovlin. Now, this is from one of Mercedes' pure pit wall uh, race debriefs that they put out on YouTube on their their channel, which are always really interesting. So here's, here's Andrew Shovlin explaining what happened. We identified that um, there was an issue with the software that was telling us that at that point Lewis was safe and that Vettel would drop out behind us. And then obviously you saw what happened. Vettel dropped out in front when he came in for his pit stop. Um, And the issue isn't actually with the race strategy software that we use. It was an offline tool that we create these delta time lapse with. And we found a bug in that tool that meant that it gave us the wrong number. Now, the number that we were calculating was around 15 seconds. And in reality, the number was slightly shorter of 13 seconds. So that was what created our delta. And that was where we thought we were, we were safe. We thought we had a bit of margin. And then obviously you saw the result. We dropped out and we were second place. And it's very difficult to overtake. And we couldn't get through. But how we deal with these sort of problems 
in the software is, is the same as if we had a reliability issue, if a bit on the car broke. And it's really just about understanding everything that went wrong, gathering all the data, um, and invariably it's never just one thing. So there's, there's elements that we can do better with calculating that, but also we've looked at it in future, we're going to make sure we've got more margin because we want to be able to cover for Vettel doing an amazingly good in-lap to the pits or having an incredibly fast stop. Um, so with any of these things, we just look at everything that went wrong, uh, work out how to solve it, and then put the processes in place to make sure that we don't have a repeat. Well, the interesting point there, and this, this ties in with the race analysis I did, that Mercedes were maybe a little bit too confident and didn't didn't close the gap in the phase after Hamilton had pitted, even though they had the pace to do so, which I would argue, even if the 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 time they calculated was was correct, is worth doing just to have a little bit more time in the bank because once Vettel had pitted and Hamilton was back ahead, there's no way there'd have been a change around, even if he had to be a little bit more conservative on fuel. But the interesting thing is the gap was 11.614 seconds in the last of the marshalling mini sectors. There's 20 of them that make up the, the circuit, so we're not talking about the three big sectors. So it was 11.614 seconds under green flag conditions, and obviously you have to have a, an adjustment because the gaps extend under virtual safety car. So Shovelin mentioned that it was just under 13 seconds was the was the, the real time. So there's also these little fudge factors in the, the, the section between the safety car line and the pit speed limit control. That's open, so Vettel could accelerate in the pit entry and then decelerate back down so that combined with a pretty brisk pit stop nothing stunning in terms of the advantage but a very quick one and slightly quicker in fact in terms of total pit lane time than than Hamilton's had been got Vettel back out just in time to to be ahead so it shows how there's some little little kind of fudge factors in there that they have to they have to put in they were just a little they were just cutting it too fine ultimately it is very interesting if we go beyond the issue of people creating offline delta calculation tools, that's uh, something that must make the long nights fly by. The, the really interesting thing for me is the degree of race management going on here and pace management. It gives you an insight into the degree to which Mercedes are perhaps not wanting to show all that they've got in terms of performance, that they felt that they'd established all the margin they needed and were very happy to sit at that margin and not go beyond it uh it, it kind of we'll, we'll come back to where they are in relation to ferrari and red bull a bit later i'm sure but to me that, that that's a little bit ominous for the rest of the season that, that they have that they clearly have something in hand i think uh hamilton's body language after after the race when he when he did his media session which would have been i guess an hour and a half or so after after the flag like he was still struggling to process exactly what had happened because he knew how well he was driving and he knew he was driving with within himself and within the capabilities of the car and that frustration of knowing that at the you know at the command he could have upped his pace closed with Vettel, and it would have been comfortable it wouldn't have even been enough to just nick him in front he, he would have been home and dry and it, it's a you know the, the the pace difference between Mercedes Mercedes and the other teams shows that it might not be too much of a problem like for the rest of the season it might normally if it's a really tight battle the that that swing losing seven points giving your rival well 10 points because Vettel should have finished third has quite big consequences that's quite a big point swing but Mercedes actually looks in in, in pretty good nick so so maybe that won't be quite as uh, crucial the mistake as, as it would in another season well it's not just the cod as you mentioned not wanting to show their pace but it's also 
the old thing of winning at the slowest possible speed. Now, that's always been part of Grand Prix racing to a greater or lesser extent. The myth of 100% flat out is a little bit uh, is a little bit misleading. But long fourth gear at Monza, which <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get we'll, into next. Exactly. Yeah, we we'll get uh, we we'll get Jackie Stewart in to talk about that. Now, obviously, there's the question of the fuel management. You don't want to use out the engine too much. But but for me, the question is where you use your pace. When Mercedes has that pace advantage, it's about deploying that pace at the moments that really matter. And I don't really mind in the first stint that he only sat, I think he was 3.9 seconds ahead of Raikkonen by the time Raikkonen pitted to force Hamilton to pit to cover any potential undercut. I don't think he needed to drive into the distance at that point. But that little phase when there was a track position switch around, I always think it's a good idea to insulate yourself because you never know because if something had ha- if Hamilton had made a little mistake or if some other car had done something to delay Hamilton, you're so close to that, to that window that only a, a few small differences make a swing. And in the end, the thing that caused the swing was a combination of the miscalculation with the fact that Vettel was presumably extremely quick in the pit entry. I think must have been must have been part of it because that's the uncontrolled bit. So... Yeah, I think that's a lesson there for, for Mercedes to learn. In fact, Shovelin, in the Mercedes Pure Pitwall video, which you can check out on YouTube on, on the Mercedes channel, which is uh, which is excellent, they said that in future we'd maybe change the way we did it because they were they were overconfident, lulled into a full sense of security. I think was a phrase that was that was used. So, I think ultimately it's one of those things. It's maybe hypercritical of Mercedes to say that that's a mistake, but that's the reality. Had Hamilton been allowed to close it. I think it was 0.494 seconds a lap he closed during that during that phase, and he could have gone gone closer to Vettel. Then none of this would have mattered, and, and it would have only taken a small amount. I think it was about six tenths of a second or something was a difference when they got to the the relevant timing point coming coming out of the pits. But yeah, Hamilton did everything right, as you said, Scott. But let's get a little bit down into the the time differences. Codders Hamilton was on pole by 0.664 seconds from Kimi Raikkonen, and as we just discussed, certainly should have won. So, how ominous is this for the rest of 2018? Well, beyond the the ominousness we've just discussed about where their actual pace probably is, I'm I'm not convinced that the the 0.664 second margin is as ominous as it looks because that was uh, a margin to Kimi Raikkonen. We can assume. I think, without straying beyond the bounds of rigour, that if Vettel hadn't made a mistake in qualifying on his own hot lap, that he would have been probably two-tenths, at the very least, faster than Kimi. And so, the same for Verstappen as well. He the same made for a Verstappen, mistake in the same yeah. corner. Both, both made mistakes, so I don't think you can put that margin... You, you can't say that margin is, is very definitive. And I don't think that the outcome of the race was particularly definitive either we know that there is there is an element of luck to the ferrari victory we know that there was an element of um, bad luck or mistake making in in red bull's uh, performance also daniel ricardo was left out of the mix because of um, his penalty for the red flag infraction so he wasn't really a, a player in the game until the end and to my mind i think what what is most ominous for the rest of the season is the way that a lot of the key players kind of capitulated at the end because they needed to save their engine you had Hamilton backing off from actually bothering to challenge Vettel and you had uh, Ricardo who'd done some pretty decent overtaking maneuvers to get himself back into contention also deciding that it wasn't worth the ag getting past Raikkonen in the closing phase so I think what we're maybe going to see throughout the rest of this year is the chips are really going to be down in qualifying it's going to be whoever delivers a floor-free lap 
and get themselves into a good position at the beginning and then doesn't lose track position in the opening phase of the race uh, are going to reap the rewards because the last part of any race likely is going to be a dead rubber because people aren't going to try their hand. One of the things that makes the Australian Grand Prix a bit misleading is that Melbourne's the new Monaco. You, you can't really overtake there. And as, as you say, it was, a, it was a Saturday battle. And with the exception of the interruption of the virtual safety car, the race went exactly as as qualifying suggested it would but in 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 the race itself obviously had people driving to you'd use that word that codders hates but different deltas basically where they were mercedes trying to win in the s- slowest speed possible and then having to push towards the end but getting stuck behind ferrari ricardo catching and getting stuck behind raikkonen's ferrari uh but actually if you look at just as a one metric was if you looked at the 10 fastest lap times from each team in the in the grand prix and there was i think there was a tenth between the three big teams uh, on average over those 10 laps and that's a small sample set of data it's not hugely reliable you'd be wrong to extrapolate a massive conclusion from it but you know up until q2 q3 in qualifying the top three teams were really close um red bull did look um to have the edge on ferrari both seemed to be uh quite close to mercedes they turned it up when it mattered and, and had that advantage but i think to suggest that mercedes is six tenths clear of, of both teams is, is is wrong at this stage one th- other thing we should bring in here is the the difference, the delta, as it were, between the top three and the rest of the field, because that's still a yawning gap. Haas appeared to occupy sort of a no man's land in within that gap, although, once again, it's a little bit too early to say we don't have enough data to make a definitive judgment. But it does really seem that while the pecking order within the uh, midfield has changed a little bit, they haven't really as a group, moved that much closer on uh, as a sort of a net calculation to the leaders. Yeah, well, actually, if you look at it, Haas's percentage gap to the front in qualifying was actually fractionally bigger this year than it was last year. Well, it should be noted that Roman Grosjean, I think, started sixth last year, so historically they've, they've been quick there. But certainly, Albert Park isn't especially representative. I think it, it's true that things are a little bit closer than they suggested. The, the interesting thing was that the closeness of the Q3 runs, the first Q3 runs rather, when uh, Hamilton, Vettel and Verstappen were covered by less than a tenth. And everyone's thinking, wow, this could be a, a mega battle. And then Hamilton obviously disappeared on the, on, the, on the second one. A big part of that, everyone talks about this party mode, the phrase that Hamilton coined and then seemed to, <laughs> seemed to deny um, when he was asked about it. But the key there seemed to be Hamilton and the rear tyres that he was struggling a bit during qualifying not to overdo them because they were particularly important for the last sector but he got stuck behind Daniel Ricciardo on his second run out lap and had to back off massively and I think that really really helped him because if you look at the onboard lap the, the lap's brilliant but the rear's really planted and Hamilton gets the most out of the car and the most out, out of the the tyres thanks to that and I think that explains that gap. Ferrari interestingly was actually pretty quick on the straights I think they've they've made some good gains there although partly that's down to being being trimmed out so it'll be interesting to see what we get from Bahrain because that's a circuit that that does privilege engine power as well good kicks off the corners quite a few uh, a few hefty straights that'll give us a a, a better feel uh, but what we can be sure of is inevitably in qualifying the gaps are exaggerated because of the the extra pace but that's that's the big problem when you you can have a car that's the same pace or a little bit slower than the rest in most of the race but if you've got track position and the ability to a few times a race dig in dig into that well as it were you don't dig into wells that's a mixed metaphor but pull out that extra lap time whether it's around pit stops or at key moments of the race that makes you very very hard to beat 
I do wonder whether or not if one's in a period where the the potency of qualifying modes and 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 whatnot is over exaggerated. I mean, I get that it's part of creating the the most powerful engine possible and and pushing development to the extremes, but I don't really see what sort of the 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 benefit is there if it's not translating into in into the race. Ed, you mentioned that Mercedes is sort of the 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 joker it can pull out is is being able to be devastatingly fast when it when it's needed but i don't know part part of me is just a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that fundamentally you you'll you'll get a massive massive boost in qualifying that you won't necessarily have on on race day but i guess twas ever thus in in formula one it's been that way whether it's qualifying tires or turbo boost that sort of thing over, over the last few decades it's also it's a key differentiator between drivers the that that sort of magic hour of qualifying where you see who can pull out the in theory perfect or near perfect lap and who actually when it comes down to it makes mistakes at the crucial juncture but does that tie into the to to qualifying modes so would would you does that exacerbate that does it make it more does it make a car more peaky to drive bring out the best even more or, or is the qualifying mode a bit of a red herring and, and you don't necessarily need that for qualifying to be as spectacular as it can be i think it is it in some ways it's a red herring but it also acts as a sort of a smoothing influence because you could argue that uh, having more power available enables you to get away with making the odd error here and there and it just it just sort of smooths out the troughs in performance while ensuring that the peaks are higher it's still down to the driver to get the most out of it is the bottom line Let's compare Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas in Q3. Well, one of them's in the wall. <laughs> the, the other one's on pole. So it's not a... The driver still has to drive the lap, if you see what I mean. But, you know, that the extra performance is is in there. But as you said, Scott, this has always been the case. You know, it might not be quite as, as fun and sexy as the days where, with turbo engines, you could whack it up to some ridiculous degree that you could barely control the wheel spin. The cars are more cultured than that now. Although the... Although the the qualifying mode, flat out Mercedes power level and Ferrari too will be uh, will be impressively high numbers in terms of of uh, of horsepower. But what we did see with the tire thing is that does mean that there's other elements there. There is the need for the driver to get the most out of it to prepare the tires correctly, etc., etc., etc. I think it would be foolish to think that it, you just flick a switch and the driver's magically on magically on pole position. But I think what it does do is mean that both Ferrari and Red Bull, who probably seem to be at a similar level overall, have a sneaking suspicion Red Bull might, on less power-dependent tracks, have a, have a slight edge on Ferrari currently, but it, it's hard to say. The big worry is that Mercedes will always be there, and then it'll be a bit of a mix between Ferrari and Ferrari and Red Bull. Now, Cod, as you mentioned, the, the gap to the midfield, which is cavernous. Of course, Haas, in qualifying, was comfortably best of the rest and should have been in the race, finishing uh, fourth and fifth with Kevin Magnussen and Roman Grosjean. Had the wheels not uh, well, not 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 come off, but almost come off due to the the cross-threading wheel nuts. Now, there's been lots of criticism about this being a, about this being a farce. Now, Scott, you've written a little bit about this. Is there legitimate concern there, or is this just Haas doing what it's meant to do under the rules? Well, well, first of all, we should clarify that you mean farce as in combination of Ferrari and Haas, not farce, F-A-R-C-E. That this is as a, in the a, classic a, British comedy <laughs> of the 1970s. Um, well, there's all sorts of problems with Roman Grosjean walking into a room just as someone else walks out. There's <laughs> someone identities. hiding under a bed. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All manner of you know, mistaken identities the, the, and misunderstandings. The problem is that in F1 circles, this is considerably less funny than that. Basically, it boils I don't down know, I've to... I've seen some pretty bad farces. Yeah, have you never seen Run For Your Wife? 
This is uh, this basically boils down to the way Haas works with uh, works with Ferrari. It has uh, has an extreme technical partnership with Ferrari, as F1's rule rules allow, which includes the use of non-listed parts, and it also means that Haas is able to utilise the Ferrari wind tunnel. And basically, what it what it comes down to is uh, the likes of Force India, McLaren, and, and and others being annoyed basically that that Haas with uh, the minimum possible investment in Formula One is able to uh, produce what it, what Force India calls uh, this magic level of performance that you can come in, you don't have the experience, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the staff, all of this, but you can go in and you can be on the third row of the grid in Australia in your third season in, in Formula One. Um, the the basically the the reason Haas dismisses it is they basically say, well, we've got nothing to be nothing to hide we don't do anything wrong and uh, Gunter Steiner's invited the rivals to protest if they think that they've got a case um Force India and McLaren want the issue clarified at the bare minimum what I think they're asking for is to have a clarification of why the FIA is so confident that there is nothing untoward going on so uh you don't want to suggest anything um illegal or immoral is going on but basically one possibility would be that there's a trend there isn't a legal transfer of information at some point whether that's not that's not necessarily open sharing of aerodynamic data to benefit both teams uh it could it could be in for example because they share a wind tunnel facility the rotating of personnel so that one person is working on both cars that that, that sort of thing um it's a it'd be a serious allegation to make so what the teams want is just they want better un- a better understanding of why they're so confident that those rules are being adhered to because basically the other teams are a little bit blind and they're saying well this just sort of stinks a little bit and we're not very happy by it, with it we're not very convinced by it so can you just tell us why you're so sure that this is legit because they know that Ferrari and House work together closely and I think as McLaren exec Zach Brown said the 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 impetus is on making sure that it's not too close. Zach Brown also said that there, there isn't any evidence at the moment to suggest that there is something nefarious or incorrect going on, which kind of puts me in mind of Dr. Neil Fox's performance on Brass Eye uh, 20 years ago. It's it's not been proven, but it's scientific fact. This, this to me is a classic Formula One news, uh, noisy news story where something's happened and people react to it. And there's a little bit of post hoc, ergo propter hoc analysis going on where something happens, then something else happens, someone draws a straight line between the two. So the the the, the logical props for this are Haas has technical relationship with Ferrari. Haas does very well in qualifying in first race of the season. There must be something dodgy going on. And actually, the evidence doesn't stack up. And as Scott just said, um, Gunter Steiner is perfectly within his rights to say, put up or shut up. Because unless someone can actually prove that something has gone wrong or has there's, there's something untoward going on, there it's highly likely that there isn't and that Haas have just done a good job. And the other thing as well is, Grosjean pointed this out over the weekend, that um, the non-listed parts from Ferrari that Haas is perfectly within its rights to use, it exists within the regulations, uh, include significant um, influences on the rest of the car design. So as he points points out, the way you have your front front suspension is going to determine the way 
the air flows over the rest of the car to quite a significant degree. So it's probably not surprising that both teams have then found the engineers across the paddock are very, very smart and they're all going to, they're all interpreting the same set of regulations. So when you have airflow in a certain way and, uh, and the way it interacts with different parts of the front of the car, you are naturally then going to influence the rest of your car design to manage that airflow in the best way possible. So if the front chunk, the big disruptive influence on the airflow at the front is the same, then you're going to find similar, if not the same, solutions across the rest of the car. It, it is very marked, isn't it, that the the people who are complaining are not particularly engineers. I haven't I haven't seen or heard from a single engineer complaining that there's something dodgy going on. Well, or, Andrew Green at Force India was a bit concerned. Mildly concerned. Okay, I'll I'll I will engage reverse gear and uh, and back out back myself out of this well. I won't dig further into it. But but no, you you have hit upon a, a valid point there because it's about more than just looking at something and seeing it. It's hugely complex because I don't want to get too much into the detail listed parts. But broadly speaking, what has has to do among other things has to do its own monocoque, etc. But the aero or the bodywork has to be its own. And so they can't simply take Ferrari bits and bolt it on, and they can't use Ferrari privileged data and knowledge to influence what they're doing. Now, some people are suggesting, well, it's a 2017 Ferrari. Well, there's not actually anything to stop Haas looking at a 2017 Ferrari. You can see a lot. Of, you can see all the aero surfaces that are in plain sight. You can't see the underbody stuff, but they'll also know some of the underbody stuff as well, just from the usual way teams learn things. And, and half then the you, photographers in the paddock are not taking uh, editorial photography. They're um, spying exactly. on other teams for other teams. The bottom line on this is the rules do allow Haas to do this. And I wouldn't say the level of performance in Australia was anything out of the ordinary, because, like I said, it was actually on pure pace, fractionally further back relative to the front by about 0.2% than it had been last year. So probably there's a little bit of there's a little bit of sour grapes going on. But I am interested that we've got several teams very strongly coming out and saying we want this investigated, which they haven't done over the past few years. So I do wonder if somebody has got some reason that they think, if not evidence, some reason that they think there may have been a, a step in this area. But the bottom line is, you know, it's it's down to the FI and the rule makers to investigate it. And there comes a point where, get to Bahrain, fine, protest. Let's get it all out in the open, do it properly. Don't just sort of chuck accusations around. Exactly, that's the problem. And Grosjean said it on Saturday. It's not very nice for the people at Haas who are, and the different partners they've got. Delara, Kevin Magnussen says Delara's upped its game for in the third season of the partnership. You've got however many employees that they do have um, are working very hard to, to u- utilize the various parts of that uh, that arrangement and, and, and make it and make it go quickly. There's a suggestion that what Haas is doing isn't very Formula One, but I, I was in the paddock. They didn't look any less of a Formula One team than, than the other, apart from the pit stops, obviously that, that was a bit lacking. Um, but I, again, may, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too green to F1. Maybe I'm not, you know, influenced by decades of cynicism and oh the way it should be and it was better back then but i i just don't buy into this idea that that what they're doing isn't very f1 and as steiner said as grosjean said it's wrong and it's unfair to declare it uh illegal immoral against the intention of rules whatever way you want to spin it i i, I don't think it's very fair when they're they seem to just be be doing quite a good job well rules are rules you're allowed to use non-listed parts to, to qualify as a constructor. You've got to produce your listed parts. They're just going to what the what the regulations allow ultimately, and that's the only way 
that a team can now get on the grid and, and be credible. This is the first team to establish itself on a sensible point scoring base, I guess, maybe since BAR came in in 99. Not they scored any points in 99. And then you've got to go back to probably Sauber before that. They ran fourth and fifth and at the end of their first lap in Grand Prix racing in Kyle Army in, in 1993 for kind of a, a smaller team doing that. And the rules the rules are the rules. There's there's too much hot air and innuendo surrounding this subject and innuendo gets boring very quickly. It's definitely not one of Queen's better albums. <laughs> and ultimately, you should just say well done to House and well done to Kevin Magnussen and Roman Grosjean for what well, it is. It's just a shame that it was two human errors, cross-threaded wheel nuts that, that ruined the, what should have been a, a stunning result. 22 points they'd have got out of that race if it had run as you'd expect and that's a big chunk of what they scored last year I think it was 47 points last season and that could make a difference in the constructors championship positions which could have financial implications so it's a it's a it's a huge deal it's a shame really because the first pit stop they had the finger trouble the the cross-threaded wheel that then of course in the second pit stop the whole pit crew would have been thinking don't get it wrong don't get it wrong it's the old don't think of a bad thing isn't it and of course that put them on edge the one thing I think you can be critical of and Gutersteiner admitted this that they didn't do enough practice pit stops in the weekend, so a little bit, uh, they're a little bit undercooked in that regard, and maybe because the front left on um, Grosjean, who's the second pit stop, he knew it was cross-threaded, and maybe they just need to leave a little bit of a margin and just say, Do you know what, we'll just give ourselves half a second just to be a hundred percent sure this hasn't gone wrong, and then of course send him out, and then you're you're doomed at that point. So a, a crying shame, really, for Husky. That would have been a great story for F1 ultimately to have a, a team of that size getting such a good result, especially as they were beating Red Bull on merit. You know, Magnussen pulled off a really really nice move at the start, got ahead of Max Verstappen, kept him at bay pretty easy, and was frustrating him to the point where Verstappen made a mistake, ran wide, damaged his rear diffuser, that then contributed to Verstappen. Uh, producing the very unusual sight of a top driver spinning it during a Grand Prix. Um, and uh, Grosjean had the measure of Ricardo as Ricardo was coming back through. So they were, they were genuinely quick in Australia and it would have been, uh, despite some of the protestations from their rivals, it, it would have been as a, a, as overall a feel-good story as the F1 paddock likes to likes to allow. Yeah, and two fine performances from the from the two drivers, Kevin Magnussen in particular, of course, who'd, who'd out-qualified Grosjean. Let's move on to the rest of the midfield. Now, Codders... Best of the rest in Melbourne in the race on results was McLaren with Fernando Alonso's fifth place. Stoffel van Dorn was ninth. I think that matches the best two-car finish of the of the Honda era, in fact. So does this mean this is the McLaren new dawn that we've all been promised? I'm not sure it really does. My mind was directed to 2014 when, of course, McLaren were credited with second and third. And then they did absolutely nothing else all year. Uh, so I was slightly concerned by that comparison. And really, when you think that throughout the Honda era, a lot of the noise that's been coming out of McLaren is our chassis is great. It's just the thing that's pushing it along that is suboptimal. Give us a better engine and we'll be running at the front. Really, they're, they're quite some distance from Red Bull still. Uh, I, I noted that you, of course, Ed, as usual, had run the calculations in your excellent column this week in the Autotalk magazine, also available online. And you pointed out that Alonso's Q2, the nearest comparison we have really in pace in qualifying is Alonso's Q2 lap and Verstappen's Q3 lap, in which Alonso was 1.8 seconds slower than Verstappen. There's a little bit of a fudge factor we need to leave there because they both blundered on their fast laps. That's still a lot. And if what McLaren were saying pre-season 
uh, actually had much meat to it, they should be closer to Red Bull than that. That's That being said, they're in a lot better place than they have been. So there is a revival of some sort, but not really anywhere near the magnitude that they were promising. If this is the start of a new dawn for McLaren, then the night's been pretty bloody terrible hasn't it yeah I, I know, <laughs> we're, we're still a little bit overcast aren't we yeah and i know that the honda era was awful uh, but as you pointed out in said excellent column ed mclaren's doldrums go you know began before the honda era they've they've been underwhelming as a force in formula one for for some time ever since they made the very very poor decision to overhaul its concept in the final year of the 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 old v8 engines from 2012 to 2013 so they went from having the the fastest car on the grid better even than red bull at the end of 2012 to being absolutely nowhere in 2013 never really recovered so i don't know there there are there are some unanswered questions there aren't there that as Cosas has said they gave themselves the yardstick of red bull and then they've sort of quietly at the start of this year tried to hide from that and but but now Alonso's come out in public again and said we can forget the midfield and target Red Bull, and uh, that's now what they've got to do. Uh, you you know more about this than I do, Ed. But they've um, they didn't quite have all of this all singing all dancing upgrade package, did they, for Melbourne? So maybe Bahrain will be a bit of a better test of of whether they're ready to make that step from top of the midfield to to the edge of the big three. Yeah, there'll be a barge board package which could be worth a reasonable chunk that will come in Bahrain. Eric Bouillet, the racing director, admitted that some of the uh, testing problems they had and the need to correct things has, has delayed some of that. And it'll probably be the Spanish Grand Prix in May, the fifth race of the season, when they catch up with where they were meant to be. I mean, we're kind of two minds about McLaren. On the one hand, I always felt that the the kind of bluster about being at Red Bull level with the chassis last year was maybe a little bit uh, setting the standards too high. And that was all against the backdrop of the Honda thing. I, I think where they've started is okay. It, it's fine. Um it's not brilliant. It's it's not terrible, and they have got a platform to work from, and and there are some some good things. The upgrades that they did put on the car in Australia seem to work reasonably well. They've still got a few handling characteristics they need to they need to work on. But for me, it's all about now. McLaren has to prove itself. It has to prove it can develop well through the season against a rock solid benchmark like like Red Bull. I'm prepared to say to to let them this season. I don't think they need to be getting exactly to the level of Red Bull because the power unit changed to Renault it does create some problems and there's a lack of there's a lack of experience with how to get the best out of it the packaging compromises inevitably they'll they'll be able to package it up better next year but i think it just means that McLaren has has still got a fair bit to a fair bit to prove and this is all about them climbing up the order but the first thing they've got to do is establish themselves at the front of the midfield because they were slower than Haas had the virtual safety car not helped Fernando Alonso he wouldn't have been fifth. He'd have been, well, if the Haas had finished, he'd have been behind them. He'd have been behind Hulkenberg's Renault. He wouldn't have been ahead of Max Verstappen's Red Bull. So it's all about being realistic for McLaren. So they're okay, and they should be able to go through and establish themselves as the fourth best team this year. But I think the stuff about getting onto Red Bull's level by the end of the year, that's a pretty big ask, because not only do you have to outdevelop not not only do you have to find the pace, you also have to like every tenth you find, you probably have to find two tenths because Red Bull will probably be finding a tenth as well. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a tough a tough ask for them for McLaren. And if you look at it compared to the big three teams, they're operating on a on a, a slightly more modest level. They're a team with great history, but 
it's all about what they're doing now and i'm going to be very interested to see what they can do over the next eight months and uh you know going back to what we were saying about the australian monte carlo uh had it not been on a circuit that is so difficult to overtake uh you would have imagined that verstappen uh in the red bull would have breezed past its fellow customer to be honest i, I don't really imagine it would have been too much hard work for him i know alonso is obviously the last driver you want to see ahead of you in terms of defending a very good position and result but i i i think the the evidence of the Red Bull's pace compared to the McLaren suggested that were it anywhere other than Australia apart from Monaco uh, the Red Bull would have still got ahead of, uh, of McLaren even without its big slice of fortune well if you look at it Daniel Ricciardo was 20 seconds up the road at the finish and he seemed to be for periods being held up by Raikkonen so that tells its own story and of course regardless of all the what-ifs in the golden era do you think Ron Dennis would even have rolled out of bed for a fifth place finish yes, fifth Fifth of the losers. <laughs> well, exactly. Fourth of the losers. Fourth of the losers. The Can't even right. get my math right, really, today. <laughs> Ultimately, I don't want to say... It's not... Suboptimal the... <laughs> mental arithmetic <laughs> matrix. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's it's not that McLaren's doing a, a terrible job, by any means. It's not they're doing a brilliant job. They've got a perfectly acceptable platform to work from, so let's see what they can, what they can do now. But it's an interesting midfield, isn't it? Because Renault were at a, a reasonable pace. Hulkenberg should have finished ahead of Alonso, and Sainz was running ahead of Alonso as well before he had his uh, off, which forced his pit stop, which was before all the virtual safety car stuff. That was not helped by Sainz being, uh, having water from his drinks bottle involuntarily pumped. pumped the, into the black it. and yellow vomitorium. <laughs> yes, uh, not much fun. But it's interesting, that midfield battle. It, it should be noted that Hulkenberg restarted behind Verstappen and uh, and Alonso and dropped back a few seconds by the end so that maybe tells you something about the uh, pace of the the runner relatively but Renault's in there Force India a little bit disappointing Sauber maybe a little bit of a surprise in terms of the pace they unleashed Williams a bit all over the place Toro Rosso didn't quite get out of Q1 but almost did but it's it's an interesting uh, it's interesting midfield battle isn't it yeah and 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 it's better because on uh, I think was it I think it was Friday there was a second between 8th and 18th and the Saubers were cut adrift but then come qualifying on Saturday once Sauber had worked through some cooling problems that they had to validate on Friday they were suddenly in that fight so you've actually got this is the thing this is why McLaren's sort of declaration that it's going to breeze ahead of the midfield and close in on Red Bulls it's a bit a bit optimistic because there's a very good chance that they'll be swallowed up by other teams at different points different cars are going to be strong at different circuits and you've got Haas McLaren Renault, which looked really good in, in Australia. Force India, which has a lot of work to do to unlock its upgrade package. Williams is a bit lost, surviving, not racing, says says Stroll. But but they were still in, in, in that group. Uh, Toro Rosso and Honda are quite bullish. And now Sauber seems to join that party as well. So it is it is fascinating. Once we get to Barcelona and you, you can actually see sort of the progress that teams' supposed big upgrade packages in the first couple of races has made, uh, when the likes of Sauber and other teams bring their next big upgrades to Barcelona, that that's going to be really interesting to see where it settles down. Because by then we'll have a, a genuinely good reading of, of where everyone is and uh, who has over-delivered, uh, more interestingly, who's under-delivered and still has a lot of work to do. And just coming back to a point that we made earlier about the lack of overtaking there was criticism of the circuit Max Verstappen had some choice words about the quality of the race and there was also talk about maybe could they modify the circuit to improve matters do you think this is just modern F1 or does it just reflect where Albert Park is Scott Uh, I would say that it's a tricky circuit to overtake on because despite the park setting it is a 
effect it's a street course so uh, it's it's tricky by nature to overtake on but you know other categories they they tend to get it done supercars race was what you know by its own standards not spectacular but they still get stuff done it's a combination of things isn't it it's a circuit that's not particularly prone to overtaking though especially with this current generation of car i'm just trying to think off the top of my head where the big stopping points are around albert park there aren't but, really exactly. any huge breakings if, if and anyone who plays the excellent formula one game on the xbox or whatever other platform other than the wii u uh the game is available on it, it is a very very tricky course to drive virtually because there aren't that many big stops it's difficult to gauge your speed obviously for a in a real car it's a bit easier to do that but there aren't really any of the big stops you can really see how the the difficulty of following another car closely plays into there not being much overtaking the nature of the fact that it's a street circuit means it's not particularly wide in some places and the f1 this current breed of f1 car is, is a little bit chunkier so there's just a few factors that are at play that it just means that in its current guise i don't think the australian grand prix is gonna give f1 particularly stunning racing unless it rains which obviously it can always do in australia it threw it down on saturday which would have uh, which would have made sunday's race a little bit more interesting um talk of track changes is maybe a bit dramatic the australian grand prix corporation uh, pitched an idea to change the back end of the circuit a little bit to engineer a, a bigger stop in um christian horner suggested maybe changing turn one so that that's got a bigger stop uh come around so, so, so there are options uh, but you don't want to you don't want to go too fast. Valtteri Bottas referred to it as a circuit with character, so that meant he's 50-50 on changing it, and I think you do need to respect that. There's also a tendency, this being the first Grand Prix of the season, for maybe a little bit of conservatism on the team's part when it comes to the actual racing. They either they either go mad at, on the first day back at school and it becomes a crash fest, or they go the other way and think, let's not crash, let's just bank the points. There's also a tendency for fans and pundits to go into Stadler and Waldorf mode, and it's either the best thing ever or it's a really boring race, Formula 1 is broken, something has to be done right now to fix it, it's terrible, boo! Yeah, very much so. And when push comes to shove... Yeah, there wasn't a huge amount of overtaking in the race. It was a little bit frustrating. But the important thing for Formula 1 is we had a slightly surprised victory in that Hamilton should have won, but Vettel did win. That's good for the World Championship. That's good for interest. So for me, it's about it's not about having a 1,000 overtaking manoeuvres. It's about what the storyline of, of the season is. And I think from that perspective, it was a perfectly acceptable season opener and it sets the stage nicely for the Bahrain Grand Prix. Uh, and of course, the Bahrain Grand Prix takes place next weekend. So keep an eye on autosport.com for all the news and the build up to that and during the weekend. Autosport magazine is out now with our in depth coverage of the Australian Grand Prix weekend. And there's also F1 Racing magazine out monthly. Codders, what, what's in F1 Racing currently? What's in F1 Racing currently? Well, we've had our season preview issue, which came out a couple of weeks ago. In the next issue, we're delving deeper into the Hamilton versus Vettel rivalry that we expect will uh, come into play this season. There's also uh, a few rejigs to the magazine. We have a new pro section of business news and punditry and also a retro section in which the the sage Nigel Roebuck kicks off uh, his Grand Prix 
Grand Prix Great series talking about Eugenio Castellotti. So we will have a wonderful mix of old and new. As to future issues, given that we're um, seven minutes over our slot here and uh, this room is supposed to be occupied by an F1 Racing features meeting, there might never be an issue of F1 Racing again if we don't close this podcast down right now and uh, have that meeting. Well, that's as good a reason as any for us to close. So thanks very much to Stuart Cuddling and to Scott Mitchell. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. American Giant does things the hard way, but that's because it's the right way. By choosing to manufacture all of its clothes in the United States, American Giant supports local communities and produces the highest quality goods on the market. Ten years ago, they went against the grain and imagined making a hoodie of unbelievable quality locally, one that would hold up for years and get better with each wear. They did just that, and now they have a full range of durable essentials for men and women, including tees, premium sweaters, cozy sweats, and so much more. The best part? Everything is American-made to the highest standards, supporting hardworking communities, living wages, and safe working conditions. So you can buy your values and fill your closet with long-lasting clothes you can feel great about. Wear your values in the new year, complete with durable essentials at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off with code NY23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, code NY23. Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.